Hey everybody, Mr. Vreesman here. I've been noticing Mr. Gums is doing a really good job of setting the scene before he dives into the AP World Review, so I thought I'd give it a try. I'm in my living room, sitting on a Persian rug. I am sipping on some delicious Bengal spice tea, and I am looking up at a photo on the wall of Suleiman's Masjid. That means I'm literally touching the cultural heritage of the Safavid Empire, while I'm tasting the spices of the Mughal Empire, all while being inspired by incredible Ottoman architecture. And all of that can only mean one thing. It is time for the AP World History Review Podcast to cover the mighty land-based empires of the period 1450 to 1750. So I know when a typical AP world student thinks of the time period 1450 to 1750, typically right away our minds go to Columbus and the Columbian Exchange. And, you know, that might be appropriate. However, we can absolutely not overlook the fact that in this time period, by far the biggest, the baddest, the wealthiest, the most powerful empires on the planet are actually the Eurasian land-based empires. So the College Board actually lists four of these land-based empires by name, and that means you absolutely have to memorize them. The first are the Qing Dynasty in China. And actually, the Qing aren't even ethnically Han Chinese. They're semi-nomadic people from Manchuria, just to the north of China. And these Manchus are actually called down by the Chinese emperors from time to time uh, when they need a little bit of muscle to keep their people under control. And one time in the 1640s, when the Han Chinese called the Manchus down, uh, the Manchus do a funny thing. Um, yes, they put down a peasant rebellion, but then they just never leave, and they create their own Chinese dynasty called the Qing Dynasty. And though not mentioned specifically by name in the curriculum guide, we should note that the Russians are building a massive land-based empire. They are finally free from the shackles of the Mongols, and they're going to stretch their empire from Moscow all the way east to the Pacific Ocean. And then the next three, my personal favorites that dominate the uh, decor of my living room, these are the Islamic gunpowder empires. The Ottomans, who control Turkey and Eastern Europe. We have the Safavids, who control Persia slash Iran. And the Mughals, who take over northern India and parts of Afghanistan. So how do these empires extend influence? Well, they're not called the Islamic gunpowder empires for no reason. The Ottomans have the most powerful cannons that anyone had ever seen, and they're actually going to shock Christendom by taking down the most fortified city in the world, and that would be Constantinople. And the Ottomans are going to turn that into their capital of Istanbul. The Mughals also are going to be surprising armies in India, the Indian armies are coming to the battlefield with war elephants, which had been very successful for thousands of years, but just the sound of the cannons going off is panicking the elephants, and we have reports that they're turning around and trampling their own men. So gunpowder is going to be the first most obvious answer. Then, of course, we've heard an earlier podcast on how states sought to seem legitimate to their people. Of course, these empires are going to use cultural beliefs. The Qing in China, they're going to claim the mandate of heaven. They're going to continue practicing Confucian court rituals to make them seem legitimate. Um, across the Islamic world, the leaders like the Sultan in Istanbul is going to claim that they are the true caliph of all of Islam. Of course, the Safavid rulers are going to disagree. They're going to claim that they are the rightful rulers because they practice Shia Islam, 
which is actually a minority sect of Islam. About 10% of all Muslims are Shia, but they're going to claim that is the true Islam, so therefore all Muslims should acknowledge that the Safavid Shah is the real boss. Along with using gunpowder or claiming divine right, a third way that states sought to spread their influence and to seem legitimate was by sponsoring incredible pieces of architecture and art. So the art that's so famous along the gunpowder empires are these exquisite miniature paintings. They're a way for, have the, for the ruler to have his face recognized throughout his whole empire. The best example of the monumental architecture would be the Taj Mahal that the Mughals build in India. A fourth way is by creating new ways to collect taxes. So a vocab term you can memorize here is the Ottoman's use of tax farming. Now that doesn't have anything to do with planting seeds, but it meant that the Ottomans auctioned off the right to collect taxes so that the rich people in the empire would essentially trying to make a little money for themselves would, would try to bid on the right to collect taxes. This means that the Ottomans themselves don't have to do it and it keeps their costs down while they still are taking in the revenue. Finally, a fifth thing that they do to spread influence is by making sure they have a professional elite class that they can train to help carry out the bureaucratic work of the empire. We already talked about in an earlier podcast how the Chinese have a bureaucratic elite through the civil service exam system. Well, the Qing are going to continue that old practice. The Ottomans are going to come up with something brand new. It's their Janissary system. The Janissaries were actually Christian slave boys that the Ottomans brought in from Eastern Europe. And then these boys were trained, they were converted to Islam, and they became a trusted force of the Sultan. And pretty soon, they became a bureaucratic elite that helped the Sultan organize his empire and help spread his influence. Now, finally, I want to talk about one of the most effective ways that these land-based empires were able to be so successful. And this was through a policy of tolerance. A major difference of the empire building that goes on across Eurasia with these land-based empires to that what was going on in the Americas is going to be how do you handle people of different faiths? We already heard some of Columbus's journal from another episode, and we know that Columbus is pretty much focused on wiping out Native American beliefs and replacing them with his own Christian cultural belief system. That is not going to go on across Eurasia. In order to survive and thrive, all of these land-based empires are going to have to practice tolerance. They're going to have to figure out how are they going to deal with conquered people who believe differently than them. So when the Ottoman Empire is first expanding, it's mostly doing so in Christian Eastern Europe. In fact, early on, 80% of the Ottoman Empire are not Muslim. So it would be insane for these Muslim rulers to try to force everybody to convert. It would never work. It would be a terrible waste of resources and constant fighting. So they invent a system called the millet system. The millet system allows each Jewish or Christian town to choose their own religious leader to set the laws. The Ottomans don't care if you're practicing Islamic law or not, as long as you're paying your taxes. And this is a perfect example of how land-based empires use tolerance to help spread their influence. They're gaining land, they're gaining revenue, and they're avoiding trouble. Perhaps no other ruler in all of world history is going to pursue tolerance with more vigor than Akbar the Great does in India. Akbar the Great is the leader of the Mughal Empire, and he's a Muslim man who's trying to control a territory that's 90% Hindu. So in order to do that, in order to keep the peace and to keep business and commerce flowing, Akbar is going to do a few things. One, he's going to get rid of the tax on non-Muslims. 
Another thing he's going to do is encourage intermarriage. He himself will marry a few different Hindu women. Akbar is actually going to construct a building in his capital that has a sole purpose of religious discussion. He's going to invite Hindu scholars, Christian scholars, Buddhists, Muslims, all together to talk about their faith, the meaning of life, and he hopes to point out the commonality in all these faiths. The basic idea of respecting one another, living a moral life. We're going to see this continue all throughout Mughal history. Just listen to these lines from a Mughal prince who lived over a hundred years after Akbar. Let the blessings of Allah be upon Muhammad and his companions universally. I wanted to behold the mystics of every sect, to hear the lofty expressions of monotheism, and to cast my eyes upon the many books of wisdom. I therefore examined the books of Moses, the gospel of Jesus, and the Psalms. Among the Hindus, the best of their heavenly books contains all the secrets of pure monotheism, and it's called the Upanishads. So I assembled Hindu scholars and aesthetics to help me translate their works. Every sublime topic that I desired or thought about, had looked for and had not found, I obtained from the most ancient Hindu books, the source and the fountainhead of an ocean of religious unity, in conformity with the Holy Quran. In fact, the push for tolerance and acceptance was so strong in Mughal India that a new religion was created called Sikhism. Sikhism is really a blend of Hinduism and Islam. Uh, think monotheism, but also reincarnation. And this faith is now practiced by tens of millions of people around the world, mostly in northern India, but this all comes out of the Mughal Empire. Now, as harmonious and lovely as that all sounds, I don't mean to mislead you. I don't want you to think that the land-based empires create this beautiful utopia where everyone is loving and accepting of each other. Of course, there's tons of political rivalry. Well, for a good example, the guy who wrote that passage that we just read was actually jailed by his uncle because his uncle wanted to wipe out all Hindus from India. So, yeah. So one concrete example of a political rivalry that you should know is the rivalry between the Ottomans and the Safavid. Like empires do, the Ottomans and the Safavid are going to be going to battle against each other all the time, really on and off for their entire existence. And the borders of these two countries constantly shifting. Most of the battles take place in Iraq because Iraq is between the two. Um, actually, if you look at the modern borders of Iraq and Iran today, that's pretty much the, where the final battles happen between the Safavid and the Ottomans. Again, we said the Ottomans were Sunni Muslim. The Safavid claimed their legitimacy from being Shia Muslim, and that's going to add to the conflict. In fact, through the conflict, a lot of Shia Muslims are going to flee the Ottoman Empire and run to Iran, and a lot of Sunnis that were in Iran are going to flee to the West to go to the Ottoman Empire. So today, Iran is the only country with a major Shia majority in the whole world, and it wasn't actually like that before the Ottoman and Safavid conflict. So, that's a lot of information to digest in a short amount of time, but in conclusion, I just want to reiterate, in the period 1450 to 1750, the most powerful, wealthiest empires on the planet are the Eurasian land-based empires. They're going to stay strong throughout the end of this period and on into the next period as well. What you need to know is how they tried to exert influence and some of the changes that they brought about. Like always, if you have any questions, please reach out to us, email me, Mr. Reisman, 
or Mr. Gums. We'd love to hear from you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.